slightly more than nothing I've ever experienced before in the sense that we're stuck in this little boat, reliant on each other, and together we are going to make this a success, or, or, or if we're not together, we're going to fail. But we kind of got through it, and um, just through road, we rode it out. We rode out of a skin. Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Rob Hamill is a champion rower, best known for having won the inaugural Atlantic rowing race with Phil Stubbs in 1997. Uh, He's a New Zealander who was born in Wakatane in Plenty Bay uh, and who is uh, currently joining me on his yacht, uh, moored in Port Gregory, just north of Geraldton, uh, patching in via a mobile SIM card. Uh, Rob is somebody who knows the water like nobody I've ever spoken with. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to, uh, to, to the discussion of uh, uh, rowing, yachting and, and everything else nautical. Rob, thanks so much for taking the time to join me on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be with you. So tell me about your upbringing. How central was the, was the water to you as, uh, as, as you grew up? And, and how did you get into this uh, somewhat crazy sport of, of going fast backwards along the water? Yes, it's a reflective sport, isn't it? Where you, uh, wherever now sees into the future. I think you need to look in the past sometimes, Andrew. The history is important to understand. And, and the history of where you've been in the rowing boat, that's all it is. Um, no, I started, um, actually, I will correct you slightly, Whakatani is the correct pronunciation for the hometown where I was born, not Wakatani. Yeah, Whakatani is not a rude word, believe it or not. Uh, WH is in Māori is pronounced with a F. But, but yes, I was uh, raised in Whakatani and, um, and I, I was very active as a young fellow, you know, really into a lot of sport, um, in particular school days, uh, volleyball. Um, and then I got into rugby when I left school and ended up getting beaten up and smacked around. And one day a mate said he was off to do, go off to the rowing club to have a go the next morning. And I got up after a late night uh, drinking too much and uh, managed to get down to the rowing club. And I, I never looked back, actually. We got to our first regatta and it was incredible how we could all just go through absolute exhaustion and still survive. It seemed at odds with the pain we felt. And, uh, but I, I loved it, the competitive aspect, the team aspect. And fairly quickly, I, I decided I wanted to carry on after the first season, which was really, it felt really intense and, and full on. I, was at, I almost didn't continue because it was a, a time user and a really yeah, tough sport. But I went on with it and then decided to try and have a crack at the, the highest level. And we um, went on, went on, and you know, did a few age group categories. I was a, I was a late starter, 19 years old when I started, but um, ended up going to the Olympics and uh, at Atlanta and competing there, and won some medals on the world stage, world championship silver medal, and a few other things here and there. Um, and it was just a wonderful, a wonderful period in my life in my 20s to to be to, to be rowing in the sport. 
And to get to the, uh, the the peak, as as you say, you were 30 when you were at the World Rowing Champion, Championships, 32 at the 90, 1996 Atlanta Olympics, uh, and then you found yourself looking around for uh, for, for a new challenge, and uh, uh, you you heard that someone was organising a, a race across the Atlantic, um, 4,000 odd kilometres. Uh, what made you think you could do it? Yeah, it's interesting because I was looking at something new. I thought 32 was probably um, the time I should retire from rowing. Actually, as it turns out, I could have gone much longer. But uh, so the Olympics was going to be it. And while I was there, I heard about this race across the Atlantic and, you know, inaugural, as you say, I thought, wow, what an amazing concept to row this, you know, this vast ocean. And, um, and, and it was a two-person boat race. And so I went around my fellow Olympic teammates and think, you know, Surely my teammates would be interested. That's sort of an amazing concept. And no one was the slightest bit interested to join me. They actually thought I was a couple of egg whites short of a pav. And uh, so I came back <laughs> to New Zealand and looking for teammates. And, um, and they, um, they were few and far between too. I actually went to the media in the end. And I actually got talking to three people. In fact, one of my Olympic teammates came forward in the end. Um, but one, one fellow by the name of Phil Stubbs stepped up and he... Um, he had all the attributes of a teammate I was looking for. With the, he had physical, he's a surf boat rower, he's highly competitive, but the main thing was he had sea experience and uh, I'd never been to sea before in my life. And um, and we made a fan, pretty pretty amazing team, actually. He made up for my weaknesses in lots of different ways. You talk about uh, one of the early times when you were chatting with him where you noticed his ability to withstand discomfort, that it was getting pretty cold, he was just in, a, in shirt sleeves, uh, and the goosebumps didn't seem to worry him. How, how, to, to what extent is, is having a high pain threshold important for uh, something like this? Well, you could argue maybe there are a few neurons not making connection in the brain. <laughs> you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe he was short a couple of kumara short of a hangi as well. And uh, so, I, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it was, this is all about, well, not all about, but a large part of this was to be able to, be able to endure discomfort and, uh, and to keep going no matter what. I mean, I had a philosophy, keep going. If you can't walk, creep. Just keep inching to your destination. And, um, and that was our basic philosophy, this whole thing, actually, from the start. Because from the beginning, it was all about money, getting to the start line. And I, I really, I quit my job. I, I got a loan from a bank, $10,000. And uh, and went from there. It was a uh, I, it was one step at a time. You know, you elephant one step, one bite at a time. This is the same thing. And uh, we just kept going till we got the money together, and then we built the boat. Got to the start line was like a huge relief. I mean, it was it was half the race in some ways getting to that start line. And then off we went into the unknown. It was an incredible feeling. So you're setting off from the Canary Islands. One of the things about it being the first race was you really didn't have very much sense as to how many days it was going to take to get over there. And, no. and so how, how, many, how many days did you pack provisions for in the, in the beginning? Yeah, we, the, the rule stated we had to have 90 days worth of food. Um, we packed 70 days, and this is all scrutinized at the start line, and we justified 70 days based on rationing if we had to as the race unfolded. Um, but we really, uh, we've done a lot of, looking at weather and systems of that part of the world, it's, it's relatively predictable. And we felt the speeds we had been rowing in around New Zealand, and we'd done some quite a, as it turned out, we did the most training of anyone that I knew of in the race. And we'd done some several overnighters traveling, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, 
250, 300 miles in each training session, some of them. And um, and we worked out we were reasonably, you know, a reasonable average. And gauging on that and the weather patterns, we thought 40 to 45, well, 45 days was pretty realistic, even maybe closer to 40 days. Um, I remember at the start line, a French television station interviewed us and and uh, and we chatted away. For, but then, then they sort of posed the question, so what do you reckon the winning time could be? And Phil says, like quite brazenly, he said, oh, 35 days. And I've looked at him, I said, what? You've never mentioned that before. <laughs> and it was, and, uh, and, uh, but he had, he really believed it was possible. And um, actually, as it turns out, it, it has been, it's, it's very close to that record time now. Um, as it turned out, it was, it was 41 days for us, um, the crossing. So it's pretty close to the, to the guesstimate. So 44,037 kilometres in 41 days. You're travelling at uh, more than 100 kilometres a day uh, and uh, doing it uh, mostly rowing one at a time, right? Uh, how did you work out your, your shifts and what, would, uh, what yeah. would work best? Yeah, you, you know, this is... If I give you an analogy, if you're rowing along in a single skull with another person alongside you rowing a single skull as well or if you're in a kayak or if you if you're walking below beside beside with someone and if you stop for a moment if you have a drink if you stop to tie your shoelaces up or and that person keeps going the energy to expend expended to catch up to that person again is quite significantly greater to get even again so we had a philosophy just do not stop rowing that philosophy again keep going if you can't walk creep just keep going because if you do stop that the energy expended to catch up is exponentially greater uh, so what we did we had two hour shifts we worked out through experimentation and training back in New Zealand four hours we tried three hours we tried one hour thinking we'd do that 24 hours a day we found one hour not enough because you're not going to get enough sleep four hours we found was too much because sitting on the oars was just your effectiveness and efficiency after about two two and a half hours became just too much and so we, we we figured two hours was about right and so what we, so we did we just rode two hours on two hours off rotating 24 hours a day seven days a week um for pretty much pretty much 41 days apart from a couple of times we had to stop with uh, weather and you uh, you didn't have a particularly auspicious start uh, you injured your left shoulder early on uh, leaving phil to uh, to have to do the bulk of the rowing um uh, that that must have been a pretty frightening experience for both of you, suddenly uh, getting a sense that you mightn't have gotten far before you're just wiped out by this uh, left shoulder injury. Yeah, it was uh, tendonitis developed early on. I think it was about day three or four. Um, and yeah, it was it was not frightening. It was deeply uh, concerning um, because if I couldn't finish the race, I mean, I was going to, and this was a race. There was, you know, we were we were there to win. We weren't going to try and just make up the numbers, or we we're going to do the best job we could to try to. And we we tried to. Um, I, I just changed my technique. Actually, my shoulder was getting really quite um, in discomfort. So I, it was the movement of my uh, rot rotator cuff, I guess you'd call it. So I locked that off with the rowing technique. The bulk of the power in rowing comes from. People think it's your arms, but actually that's the least amount of power. Actually, the bulk of it comes from uh, the legs and the body, the legs going down on the sliding seat and then the torso, the opening of the torso, and the arms just finish the stroke. So I found actually changing my technique, actually, I was still generating as much power um, as, as I was before, pretty much. And um, 
and then the, then my body adjusted over time and I was able to row normally again um, as, as the race went on. Yeah, it reminded me of uh, Scott Jurek's uh, story of uh, running the Appalachian Trail, which is a similar event. He took 46 days to do it. And very early in that attempt, uh, he gets a, uh, gets a bad injury, uh, but, uh, but manages to push on and, and have his body recuperate during the event. It's sort of anathema to most of us who uh, think that if we're injured, we need to, ta need to take a break. Mm. But uh, clearly you're able to get your body to come back together. And, uh, and even, yeah. you know, with the, the, the chafing and the, uh, you talked about the finger clawing at the end, uh, yeah, your fingers sort of locking up around the oars. Because yeah. what would happen, the, the joints in your, around your finger joints uh, curled around the oar, there's just no blood supply. And of course, that's all fine while you're rowing, but it's actually in the off period where the fingers would just sort of, I don't know, they just tended to lock up. And you would wake up and they were, that you're just completely, and you'd have to, oh, not all the time, but sometimes you'd have to physically get, you know, with the other hand, try and loosen up the finger and straighten them up and just get some blood flowing through them again. Um, until you and then you go start rowing again. <laughs> what were some of the most beautiful moments of crossing the crossing the Atlantic? The boat was open, I assume. You could you could see the see the sky. Yes, yeah, so it was an open deck where we rowed from. We had a stern cabin we could take shelter in. Uh, it was a seven meter long boat, actually, for what it's worth. It's seven meter, uh, 21, 22 feet long, six feet wide, and we had two rowing stations on it with a cabin in the stern. Uh, yes. It, yeah. Look, there were some awful times and there were some extraordinary times. And they say this is, you know, the key to being able to be, to enjoy life is to, you know, have the less pleasant times to really get a perspective on when you're having a wonderful time and uh, just extraordinary moments. I think one of my most memorable, well, there's several memorable times. I remember one time where we had a school of Dorado just feeding frenzy near us and there were marlin chasing Dorado, Dorado chasing other, other smaller fish and, and then that evening, our water maker had broken down. And but Phil was uh, on his off shift. He was trying to fix the water maker. And I dared not stop rowing with him knowing. But I kept rowing. It was a flat, calm evening. Just absolutely lake flat, calm. And I gently stopped rowing. And I stood up in the boat and looked around me. And these, the school of Dorado started circling us as the boat sort of slowed up. And I only did it for about, I don't know, 20, 30 seconds. That was all I dare Phil would have given me a, a bollocking. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, but it was surreal. It was just one of those moments. Another time I was remember, oh, this is another thing. We, we had a commitment not to go to the toilet during our shift, or we'd made a pledge to. And the idea being, if you had to go to the toilet, uh, the big one, number two is just hang on until you, you know, you change shifts and um, then you can go. But this particular morning was about three or 4 a.m. in the morning. I had to stop and I was sitting on the bucket. And I remember again, it was a, it was a flat calm, no wind, uh, very little sea evening. And the boat came to a halt and I was sitting there in this enormous, gigantic Atlantic Ocean and no stars. I was just, oh, there might've been a bit of starlight, but it wasn't the stars that got me, it was the sound or the lack of. And I realized that the, the swishing of the boat through the water, the sound of the rollocks clicking in the, in the, in the oars clicking in the rollocks and the, the sliding seat roaring up and down the slides and this noise that was constant. That was a, just a constant with us the entire race. In this moment, sitting on the bucket, 
in this tiny little speck of a boat in this enormous ocean on this rock that's balancing, hurtling through the universe. <laughs> was quite, um, I've never taken hallucinogenic drugs, but I think it might have been as close to taking some of those uh, things because I really felt uh, out of body, actually. It was amazing, yeah. Sounds like the most transcendent number two experience one can imagine. <laughs> uh, and, and of course, you know, when there's only two of you in a boat for uh, 41 days, uh, it's not all going to be um, smooth sailing, as they say. Uh, how did the uh, relationship go with, uh, with, with Phil and uh, what sort of uh, tiffs did he get into? No, we never argued. We were perfectly... Um, <laughs> no, we, were always, we were exhausted. We were sleep deprived. We were racing. What could possibly go wrong um, with two blokes in a boat? Uh, we had, yeah, we did have a couple of moments. And it was really interesting in reflection. The, the moments we had were 100% through miscommunications early on and little things that hadn't been dealt with early on that sort of blossomed uh, and procedures that hadn't been activated. Um, and I, I guess I could talk specifically about procedures. We had a, a jobs, allocated jobs in the boat. And um, and look, we, I should say, we had a beacon on the boat telling the organizers where we were. All the boats had these transponders. Back then they were called Argos beacons. And, um, and that's the only communication outside the boat we had. We actually didn't have any communication to talk to anyone outside the boat. In reality, it was just a beacon. Um, and so we didn't know whether we were winning or losing the race. We hoped we would be. You know, we thought we might be based on what we'd seen out of the start and how fast we were going. And, um, but we just didn't know. And uh, we saw a couple of ships along the way. And each time we tried to communicate them with our VHF radio, it was a handheld line of sight. If you could see somebody, you should be able to communicate with it. And uh, we didn't get any response. And each time, Phil would be He'd kind of preempted, look, no one would be listening to this thing. They're all asleep on ship, these guys, you know. Um, they're unprofessional, these cargo ship guys. <laughs> just, he was quite um, offhand with them. And, and he was right, as I suppose, in that we never got any response. Until the third and last time, and it was about day 30 or something. Um, and it was about, I don't know, three o'clock in the morning again. It was my shift, and I saw this light coming up over the horizon. I thought it was a star at first, turned out to be a shift, a shift, and then turned out it was right on our course, and it came right up behind us. And by the time they got up alongside us, it was it was time to change shift. And I woke Phil up, and I said, "Mate, there's a ship right here." I didn't want to wake him up before a shift because you know sleep was really important. But anyway, it was right beside us by the time he got up, and I said, "Give him a call on the VHF," and he he says, "Ah, they won't be listening." Uh, so he just he just refused to even ask. <laughs> he didn't even try. I, I was really surprised. And I, anyway, I, so I said, oh, okay. And we swapped over and I immediately got on it. And they came back to us straight away. And the, after a few sort of uh, initial discussions back and forth, I finally got to ask, you know, can you tell us what our position in this race is that I've just explained we're in? And, um, and they didn't come back to us. And I looked at the VHF and it was flat. Now, this procedural thing, the, the battery charging procedure was Phil's job. And, and I alerted him to the fact that the battery had gone flat. Um, and I said, listen, you shut up and row, boy. Yeah, that's your job now. I'm doing this job. And he didn't like that. And, uh, and again, you know, sleep, in the normal circumstances, that wouldn't be a problem. But I guess with that tension and the exhaustion and 
And then this, this, this argument ensued that, you know, we, we've lost the battery contact, we've lost contact with the ship, we've lost our, find out where we're going in this race. And, um, and, and almighty Barney ensued, and it was like a, I don't know, it's like more than nothing I've ever experienced before in the sense that we're stuck in this little boat, reliant on each other, and together we are going to make this a success, or, or, or if we're not together, we're going to fail. And it got to the point where I said some smart alecky comment, which was actually quite probably accurate as I recall, I can't remember what it was, but it sort of nailed him. And you know, any, any wild animal cornered comes out and um, Phil just yelled at me, mate, you want to punch in the head? And he, um, now Phil was a police officer and he could handle himself very well. And I looked out the cabin, I was inside the cabin at this time, I looked out the cabin and Phil was, you know, crouched on the cabin on the deck, ready to pretty much leap in and, and you know. And I'll tell you what, this, this kind of, I don't know, just this wave of, um, uh, hard to describe, but it was like this, you have a, you, you know, sliding doors moment, I suppose, where if you do this, this is going to happen. If you do this, this is going to happen moment. And I realized if I reacted badly, things could really go bad here and the race could be over. And I immediately went from a blind rage, as was Phil, and I just went immediately calm and I apologized. And I said, listen, I'm sorry, mate. I'm really, I'm out of, I'm out of line. You're right. We just got, let's just get on with the job. And the tension immediately released from Phil's body. It was, it was, it was a coming together moment in some ways because we, um, we both recognized in that moment what could have been. And um, I don't know. I, it, yeah, it was, um, he was angry for the next day. <laughs> I was frustrated and angry for the next day, but we kind of got through it. And um, just through, we rode it out. We rode out of our skin the next kind of 24 hours. And, I, and I'm not sure what to take from that other than, you know, we choose our response to whatever situation is. And that the response I took at that time, in some ways saved the race. We may have pulled out of the race or worse, who knows what might've happened. Um, yeah. And anger and rage can be, can be very, very uh, negative. Absolutely. Uh, your book is called The Naked Rower. Now, why does it have that title? <laughs> Well, we, had, we set out with a name to, um, look, I'd heard about a previous attempt to row an ocean by a guy called Andrew Halsey. He'd spoken to me about it. And he said, one day he was rowing along and he said, he slipped sideways on the seat, fell off the seat. And he said he felt like he was sitting on wet newspaper. And it was indeed the skin was peeling off his backside. And so I wanted to avoid that if I could and had, so I had woolly, wool sheepskin, uh, wool sewn into the back of our shorts, making the first point of contact of our, and no sheep jokes, please, Andrew. Um, and um, <laughs> <laughs> and we um, had this wool making the first point of contact in our shorts. The problem was it was 35 plus degrees at times, and it was like wearing a woolen nappy. And it uh, and so one day, it was really hot and sweaty and uncomfortable. I, I don't know, four or five, six days into the race, I, I decided to experiment, and I whipped this pair of shorts off midday shift put it on the on the seat and rode buck naked and then before waking him up before waking full up again I put the my shorts back on again because I was a bit anxious about what he might think and on the third day or second or third day of doing this I actually thought you know you should give this a go Phil because it actually it's making a difference it's a lot cooler it's a lot 
more comfortable and it it's, it could minimize injury. And uh, yeah, and uh, so he agreed with the idea. And so together we rode across the Atlantic um, pretty much buck naked. It was not a pleasant <laughs> flight. <of failure. laughs> and uh, it must must have been an interesting sight for the uh, for the boats that you were talking about before coming up alongside you there. <laughs> exactly. You really cover up at the appropriate time, but uh, yeah, the finish. <laughs> How did you feel when you uh, when you finally sighted land in Barbados? Oh, uh, well, actually, you know, the day before we were, we were getting close. I think we had about seventy miles to go. Still no sight of land, but we knew we were getting close. And and I remember we um, uh, a, a press boat had came out had left the day before the earlier that morning or something, and to come out and see us and. And we saw this boat and far out, there's a, it's like a, it was a, I don't know, about a 40 foot launch pounding out through the seas. And um, they informed us that we, well, it was kind of funny because we hadn't spoken to anyone for 41 days or 40 days at that stage. And this was finally potential, definitely going to be the first point of contact. And we got talking to these guys and they said, Kiwi Challenge, it's great to see you and following your progress on the internet. And it's wonderful. These guys been on for quite a bit, actually. And, and I said to Phil, mate, try and break in and see how the heck we're going in the race. And, and he said, yeah, great to see you guys too. But look, could you tell us what our position is? Over. And they said, yeah, you're, you're 32 degrees north and 28 west or whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, thanks for that. But um, look, could you tell us what our position in the race is? Are we first? Are we 10th? How are we going? Over. And they said, Kiwi Challenge, you are number one. You are number one. And, uh, and that's all they said. <laughs> so how did we feel? Oh, my word. I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I could believe it. I believed we could win. But in that moment, it was just like far out. We hooted and yelled and high-fived. And I nearly fell overboard. We shook hands. And, you know, there was no hugs. So it was, you know, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, but I just fell overboard. Or so. And then Phil said, mate, calm down. He said, look, we've got a good 70 miles to go here. Yet. We don't want to be overtaken. On the last hurdle, so to speak, and I said, "Flame, a good call, Phil." And he went back and said, "That's fantastic news, fellas. But look, could you tell us what our position? Well, um, could you tell us how far back the next boat is? Over?" And they said, "Yeah, uh, 560 miles." <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> "What?" Uh, and so we took a two-minute break, and um, and we had another celebration, and and rode in that last. 20 or well, 20 odd hours into the finish line was just extraordinary and, and uh yeah I, I will say though the start was in some ways more extraordinary because that sense of unknown setting off into the unknown what's going to happen how are we going to make it are we going to survive that was a more enlivening uh, and 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 in some ways enriching stepping off the ice flow you know you imagine stepping off the ice flow to the next one because this could be our survival and it was kind of like that <laughs> yeah I don't know but um so the finish was great but the start was better so by the time you've you finished you'd uh, lost 14 kilograms and uh yep. Phil I think you said had lost eight kilos yeah uh how long did it take after the race before you uh, you wanted to uh, to go rowing again it was November of 97 that we finished and our club rowing season um is starting around then back in New Zealand 
so we, we flew home and had a little bit of a break for, I don't know, probably had too much of a break really. And then I started rowing with the club again with my teammates and, and um, yeah, I, I mean, it wasn't too long. I mean, I, I did find I wasn't terribly uh, sprinty. I couldn't sprint very well early on, but just trained the muscle groups back into the, you know, over the season for the next four months. But no, pretty much carried on. And then uh, at the end of next, the, the next year, on the uh, 20th of December, 1998, um, you get, get some shocking news. Tell us mm. about that. Yeah, so I was at a rowing camp down in Wanganui and I uh, got a call from a journalist saying, um, could you tell us your thoughts about Phil? I said, well, what about Phil? He said, oh, you haven't heard. And he explained that he, um, had, he, used to, he was a pilot a hobby pilot and he had a shares in a plane and had taken off and spent a day at a beach in Karakari Beach on the west coast and was flying, about to fly home and took off from the beach and crashed soon after take off and died. Um, yeah, it was, it was extraordinary. Phil lived, lived kind of three or four lifetimes in his lifetime, 36 years of age and 20th of December, 98 was his last of any adventures. And for you, that loss was certainly not the first time you'd had somebody close to you die. Um, tell us about your brother Kerry and, and how he was how he was killed. Yeah, look, I'd say first off that the Atlantic Row, in some ways, was inspired by my bro. Um, so what happened was he had um, in, in the mid to late seventies, um, he set off on his overseas experience, the ice flow, <laughs> jumped onto the ice flow. And um, and he set off actually to Australia and um, Sydney and then did some sailing around there up the coast, east coast of Sydney, spent uh, some time there, six, several months. And then he, with a friend, bought a yacht up in Darwin and spent uh, many months repairing and getting the boat ship shaped to head off up into the, up into Southeast Asia for the adventure of a lifetime. And, uh, a year later, um, he was sailing from somewhere near Singapore up to Bangkok, taking charters. He got by doing paid charters, day trips, weekends, trips, several weeks at a time, a couple of weeks at least sometimes I spoke with some of his charter um, guests. And uh, he, he was taking a charter up to uh, Bangkok, blew, got blew off courses in 1978, blew off course and ended up in Cambodian waters took shelter behind an island called Kotang Island, about 50 kilometres offshore. Uh, little did he know, uh, I can't believe he would have known, um, on the other side of that island was a Khmer Rouge naval gun base. And that evening they were attacked by a gunboat. Uh, Kerry's friend, Canadian Stuart Glass, was shot and killed at that time. And the charter, uh, an Englishman, John Dewhurst, were taken prisoner, along with my brother, Kerry, to... Uh, Tulsling Prison in Phnom Penh, um, the capital city, which is, Tulsling was the notorious uh, torture uh, concentration camp likened to Auschwitz of Germany. And uh, Kerry spent two months there, was forced to sign confessions uh, along with John to um, John Dewhurst to um, confess to being CIA under duress and, um, and were then executed. Um, yeah, and you know, when I was at sea, I, I, um, I grieved for my bro, like I had just heard the news when it was some 20 years later. 
Uh, and yet it was, yeah, yeah it was, um, it was inspired in some ways by, by Kerry's demise. Such a senseless death. How, how did it affect the rest of your family? Deeply. And, you know, the ramifications for these things, I think it's, uh, it shapes your family. It shapes your life, definitely. Um, Kerry was missing. He just went missing from our perspective initially. He was missing for 16 months. He just said no news. Letters was the staple communication back then. Uh, phone calls was not impossible and certainly no internet. Uh, so his last letter was received uh, 16, 16 months before the the news of his, um, through the media actually, again, a media person, uh, I think contacted my parents with the news. And um, yeah, so 16, what was it, 16 months after Kerry went missing, we heard the news and then about eight months after Kerry died, my second eldest brother, who was very close to Kerry, uh, took his life. Oh, Rob, wow. To lose two brothers in that, uh, that is such a short span of time. How did you, how did you sort of rebuild yourself emotionally? Because you were, what, 14, 15 when all of this happened? Yeah, I was 14, 15 going on around that time. My parents, you know, they suffered greatly. They were, they were, you know, they were so brave and they were so courageous and they were, they never gave up hope for Kerry until they heard the news and and uh, and in some ways, you know, we never saw the body. And so in some ways, you kind of sometimes get have dreams of Kerry coming out of the bush in the Cambodian jungle, bedraggled and, you know, <laughs> survived somehow. But, you know, it, it, it affected everyone deeply. I, for me, um, yeah, teenager, I, I, I was fortunate in sport. It was kind of a, um, a saviour for me. I, I was very active. and um, But alcohol was also a... Um, a big player in my life and I must have been for mum and dad who were deeply grieving having their youngest child the only one still at home um, I would be out at night getting very drunk and coming home very late as a 15 year old um, and uh, going to school the next day and you know, I don't know I mean we got through it somehow there's no there's no real social support at that time and with suicide as well with John's death that was very kind of there was a label yeah, it was a real negative connotations I think for mum and dad with that you know had they been bad parents and you know I, I, I as a parent myself now I just I still don't fully I can't fully get the uh, what they went through yeah although I have a greater understanding now having my own children but, uh, yeah <laughs> we got through it yes it must make you treasure your kids all the more to to know that they can be taken away from you like that it does it sure does i want to spend as much time with my family as i possibly can maybe that's a, uh, maybe that's a symptom of that i don't know but i certainly love spending time with my kids and my wife and we can't i can't understand you know this people say i can't wait till the school holidays are over go, what what is that all about <laughs> i just do not get that um, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's special times. You write in the Naked Rower that your sporting hero is Muhammad Ali, a, a guy you got to meet at the Atlanta, Atlanta Olympics. Um, I, I find this sort of it, it's it's not not who I'd expect uh, because uh, you know Ali had to be so 
self-assured because he was facing so much. Whereas I think of you as in some sense a, a gentler kind of sportsman. Yeah, I'm definitely not a fighter, that's for sure. Right, uh, right. I mean, you're the kind of guy that apologises yeah. rather than rather than stands yeah. up for the punch. But, yeah, but no, more that's than right. that, you don't yeah, seem generally... to want to win at all costs. No, yeah, no, that's right. I'm, I'm not. But I do... Uh, look, he was an incredibly inspiring personality. You know, when he... He made several stands along in his career. And I mean, the most memorable one, of course, when he refused to uh, take the cushy job uh, with the US Army, you know, to fight the... Yes. I remember what he... What do you say? I ain't got no problems. No Viet Cong. No Viet Cong ever called me. And um, I think that was, you know, extraordinary man. He, um, ah, there were so many. I just loved his confidence too, though. He couldn't help but get sucked up in it. He was just over the top. We would say nowadays, uh, cocky, and oh, they, they said it now, then back then too. But he was highly intelligent, and he knew strategically how to how to. His art, how to play and do his art well. He trained hard. He had a very good ethic in his early years. Um, I don't know. There was just so much to be inspired by Ali, and I loved his poetry. Yeah, I don't know. He's, a, he's an extraordinary sportsman. There's no uh, no doubt about that. Um, you uh, you stayed engaged in the uh, the Atlantic race. Uh, you managed the New Zealand teams that won it in 2001 and 2003. Uh, and then in recent years, we've seen uh, your your record broken now by four days. Uh, Dave Spellman and Max Thorpe uh, did the uh, did the race in 37 days in 2019. Uh, how do you how do you feel when you see a record like that? Good on them. Well done. Yeah, uh, it's just a great thing. I mean, uh, it's only a world. It's only a record. You know what's records? It's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now you're really not sounding like Muhammad Ali. <laughs> um, yeah, no, well, you know, it had, yeah, it, it actually was broken by another New Zealand crew in uh, the third race. Uh, they took it down to 40 days, something. And then uh, these guys, yeah, no, it, it's just, you know, that's what kind of, that's what human progress is about, isn't it? Just getting better and better all the time with, I don't know, with technologies, getting lucky where the systems can play a role. Um, but no, it's, it's a good thing. And you uh, you set up a uh, trans-Tasman uh, rowing race in 2008. Um, how far is that? Yeah, look, I attempted to with a prototype sort of uh, attempt with a boat designed and built to do that. And uh, I got a crew of four together to have a go at doing it. And they rode from Sydney Harbour Bridge to Auckland Harbour Bridge. And... Um, but look, I got distracted, to be fair. I mean, it was, I think it's, it's an idea that has some merit, um, but it's not something I've just continued with, really. I guess family took over, and um, and I have no regrets about that. But, you know, maybe one day there's still an opportunity. We had this amazing design boat that um, did the job really well. We could still use that as a prototype. Perhaps one day we might get some uh, interested parties together and have a go at it, make it happen. Does it have the potential to be the sort of uh, Sydney to Hobart of uh, of rowing, or is is are the uh, are the oceans too rough to make it uh, a, a regular regular passage? Well, who knows? With all the health and safety stuff that you have to tick the boxes with these days, which is it can be can be uh, extremely over the top. Um, I I wonder if even it would be allowed to start. I don't know because there would be inherent risks, but. Um, you know, it can be done, it's been proven, it's been rowed several times. Um, but 
that can take lives, as we you may recall, Andrew McCauley. Um, yes. You know, kayaking nearly within within sight of New Zealand, and then last we ever saw it, we heard of him. So yeah, it's not something I want to be associated with, to be fair. But I do want to be associated with pushing the boundaries and taking risks and and letting people jump on the ice flow. Now I'm speaking to you on your uh, your yacht. Um, what are you uh, What are you doing at the moment? Uh, what is uh, What does life uh, involve for Rob Hamill these days? Well, we set off three years ago, uh, 2018. My wife Rachel and three boys. Um, at that time, they were aged 15, 13, and 10. We set off to uh, sail around the world, really. And part of it was we were hoping to sail to Cambodia to to follow Kerry's journey there. And uh, and stop along the islands that he had been to along the way as well. Very much was looking forward to that. And I say was because of the current situation, but it's not going to happen soon. Uh, we got to we arrived in Australia November nineteen, and a month later we were in Gold Coast and we got hit by lightning, hit the mast, and so we hauled out. And while the prep while the repairs were going on, the novel novel coronavirus arrived. And we've been here ever since. Um, had an amazing time sailing the east coast of Australia. And a couple of months ago, we sailed down to Sydney and then Eden and around to Port Lincoln and then Esperance on our way across to WA. And a uh, terrific journey, but I wish we'd done it a bit slower, but we had to just take the weather window. And now we are, we are just tickling our way up the west coast of Australia and very much looking forward to the next step, uh, you know, Shark Bay, Exmouth, Kimberleys, and, and then maybe to Darwin, where my brother set off from. Rob, you've spent a lot of time in the open ocean. Uh, for somebody who uh, has always wanted to try sailing in the open ocean but doesn't know where to get going, um, how, would they, how would they get a start? How do you dip your toe in the water, as it were? Oh, join a sailing club. Yeah, join the club. <laughs> get amongst it. Centre borders, you know, start with the P-class. Um, oh, P-class in New Zealand, Optimist. Get your kids involved. There's lots of opportunities. Australia is a, is a great sailing nation. And, uh, yeah, there's lots of opportunities to get amongst it. Um, I'll start there. You can, you know, you, you can join, join the bigger clubs. You know, Fremantle Sailing Club we've just been to. Great club. And they have lots of facilities there where either you get into the small centre borders or you can go out for races, day, you know, evening races on some of the, you can crew on the boats with uh, other, other skippers and um, you can learn, your, you learn the ropes there. I know a lot of people, I know a lot of people now with the current kind of what's happening are looking at their lives and where they're, where they're at at the moment and, and thinking, well, it's time to get out and live life. And if, it's, if that is, means getting on the water, having adventures, then that's it. A lot of people I know have bought up every item of camping equipment, <laughs> caravans and things, haven't they? It's a booming <laughs> Absolutely. business at the moment. So, and I think, great. That's a great outcome of a very negative situation. What are some of your favourite things about being out on a yacht? Powered by sails, there's nothing quite like it, actually. I've, ne I've never really had that. It's a feeling of... Um, just connecting with nature, I suppose, um, using the forces of nature to push you. Um, some say it's the most expensive way to travel free, and I would agree. <laughs> it's incredibly expensive to maintain and operate, and and uh, yeah, well, we won't go any more to that. But 
I, I just think it's it's a wonderful um, way to get the team operating as a team, you know, cohesively. If one person's not doing their job on the vote, things can go uh, astray pretty quickly. Um, I think, uh, yeah, it's just a, a wonderful way to see different and extraordinary uh, out of the way places that you normally couldn't get to. Um, at dropping the pick in a secluded bay um, where no one else is around is quite something else. But also, you know, we've met extraordinary people. Uh, the cultures we've met in Fiji, Tonga, Vanuatu, you know, New Caledonia, and Australia, you know, it, it's sailing. You can't, you, I don't, you can't do that with any other sort of um, modem of transport, I don't believe. Rob, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Question everything. <laughs> do you feel you weren't questioning enough? Uh, no, I, I was naive, as we all are at that age, yes. I, I, um, well, I would just say take it as a philosophy forward in your years if you, um, I don't know, question everything, learn history. Learn history. Understand your own history. Understand world history as best you can. And because from our history comes our present and um, and from our, from our history, you know, we can we can plan for the future you know it's it's really important because where there are so many mistakes made and to be learned from those experiences of, of those you know gone before us so i yeah i mean i could go deeper into that but i'll, I'll risk going political <laughs> but yeah i just i just think very question everything and and focus focus on what you're doing if you want to achieve something the only way you're going to achieve it is by focusing You've got to really focus. And if I was myself, if I was talking to myself here now, I'd say be nicer to my parents. Be a better son, be a better daughter to your parents because you're going to miss them because they're not going to be around forever. And, uh, you know, I, um, yeah, I, I could have been a better son to my parents. I know that. I wasn't a monster by any means. But, you know, what they were going through, in particular during those years of loss, uh, and sure, I was grieving too, but I know I could have been uh, more supportive. And I don't know, it's difficult to explain that, really. But anyway, just be nice to your parents, people, please. <laughs> uh, what's something you used to believe but no longer do? Mm. Um, oh, gosh. You know, uh, the tooth fairy is not real. <laughs> Isn't that a funny one though? I, 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 um, a little anecdote there about our little youngest Ivan. He, he believed with, and I didn't realize just how much he believed in the tooth fairy until we told him it wasn't real. And the, and the, the, um, the hurt in his eyes and the tears and the, it really cut me. It cut me deep. It made me realize. You know, we've been lying to our son and he knows we've been lying to her. You've been lying to me all this time, you know. I wouldn't if I was a parent, I wouldn't do the tooth fairy thing. If I was, I'd say, now tonight I'm gonna to put some money under your pillow. You put the pillow, you know, tooth under the fairy, and I'm gonna come in and put some money in there and you know, you'll be surprised what it is in the morning. You know, the first lie we tell our children. And um so I guess be honest. Be honest. Your comment about the tooth fairy made me think of uh, Sam Harris's book in which he advocates that you should never lie except if 
someone is in, in imminent danger. Um, so you know he makes an exception for a sort of Anne Frank asking uh, answering the Gestapo at the door, but uh, says that in the case of of Christmas, for example, um, there's no ethical basis for. Uh, telling, making up a story to kids about a uh, white-bearded man who comes from the North Pole or the South Pole, uh, and that the the beauty of the celebration is greater if if there isn't a lie at the heart of it. You know, uh, I, if you'd said that ten years ago, I would have said, "Really, what's the problem with that?" But no, I agree. I, I have to agree with you. I, I um, it it just you know it undermines your own truths isn't it you, um, for well for the child in particular um, who's this guy that's who are these Perry people looking after me are they the real deal <laughs> you know so yeah I agree Rob when are you most happy uh, exercising having uh, you know happy occasions with my family you know joyous occasions being a bit cheesy but just having exhilarating moments uh, with family and friends, really, really huge for me. Um, but really, exercise is, is, a, is, is a big part of my my happiness quotient. Um, if I don't uh, exercise for several days, I do start to feel a bit stuck there. Not not that I feel unhappy, but I do feel a bit blah. Like I feel like I'm my body's falling apart, and you know, and I've got to get out and do something, keep moving, keep moving. Very important. I am terrible company if I haven't exercised for a couple of days, so I know exactly where you're coming from. Rob, do you have any guilty pleasures? Chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) Chocolate. Any particular kind? Pardon? Any particular kind of chocolate? Oh, I'm a bit pro-kind. I like Whitaker's. Whitaker's chocolate's flaming good. Um, Coconut, jelly tip. Uh, oh, I don't use it so much fruit or fruit. Oh, it's just—it's all good. It's all chocolate, you know. It's all good. Ice cream. <laughs> you must have been able to eat a lot of chocolate going across the Atlantic. Yeah, it was—it was one of our staples actually, because we had difficulty um, uh, keeping it keeping fat. We storing fat was our fat was our best you know energy source, and but storing it in, in sort of thirty plus degree temperatures was difficult and. But we found chocolate was a really good way to do that. And I had no complaints and still didn't either. Uh, we had so much chocolate on the boat. It was supplementary to our, um, our main meals, but we were eating it pretty pretty regularly between shifts and during shifts. Finally, Rob, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Um, you know, oh... Experience probably oh, there's so many people I, I couldn't pin down a single person. You know, Ali kind of we talked about some of my closest friends who I have huge admiration for, uh, just their just their values and their morals, their, the way they conduct themselves as leaders. Um, but also a little as an experience, I suppose that I don't know if this is ethical, but just sort of set me up as a as a value, I suppose. Um, when I was 13. Uh, 14 at school and we um, had a flyer come around the school notice board you know anyone wants to have a go at volleyball um, come along to the gym today at lunchtime and so I did a bunch with a, long, a whole heap of other kids and and um, and we all got into it and uh, for several weeks we trained and practiced and learned how to play and I guess I don't know how long a month two months maybe three months later we had our first inter-school competition 
and the, the teacher said, oh, I'm going to put the notices, names on the notice board at the end of the day of the teams you're in. And I went along kind of expecting to be in the A team because I thought I was pretty good. And, and I looked at the A team, my name wasn't there. I looked at the B team, it was not there. I looked at the C team, was not there. I was in the D team, the last team. My name was put in and I, I was shocked, horrified, disappointed. And uh, it was like, you know, it was, um, it was a real come down. I, I realized actually I was, I would, uh, I'd got ahead of myself. Uh, but I took it on the chin and we played the tournament and then we went on and uh, I got stuck in though. Um, I, I went home and I, I loved the sport and I trained really hard after school every night. I'd, not every night, but I strung a rope across a couple of trees and I'd play volleyball against myself, throw the ball up, I'd dig it, set it and then spike it to myself to an invisible opposition. And you know, I, I just got better and better and I didn't want to be a setter. I wanted to be a spiker, but I was too short to be a spiker. So I just trained to jump higher than anyone else. And eventually I was the only one in my year that um, went on to uh, make the New Zealand team, the New Zealand secondary schools. And it was simply through passion, I suppose. You know, with passion, anything can, you can do anything. But, and, and it was fun. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, I don't know, I just, it just as an experience, it showed me that, you know, with focus and discipline, and make and as long as you're having fun, you can achieve so much. You really can. Robert, sounds like an incredible adventure you're having. If people want to follow you, how do they do that? Well, yeah, we have we um we are documenting our journeys. It started off as just Rachel doing it for her mother. Um, started making videos, and uh, we've actually it's become quite a big journey now and um, people lots of people following us on YouTube um, um, if you if you have any desire to follow our adventures it's the, the cruising Kiwis on YouTube if you go to youtube.com and just search up the cruising Kiwis or Google the cruising Kiwis you'll find us and this I tell you what Andrew there's some mayhem and mix-ups and challenges and disasters some incredibly fun times incredible discoveries that uh, we've had over the three years that you'll, I think, you know, anyone who's into sailing will, will enjoy. Yeah, yeah, that sounds fantastic. Rob Hamill, uh, wise man of the waters, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Brad, Karen, Arthur, Dick Telford, and Sue Reed. We appreciate getting feedback on this podcast, so please leave us a rating or tell a friend about the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier, and more ethical life.